right. You know, when I was, uh, when I was growing up, the recognition of real-life heroes was a big thing. Whenever we studied history, I loved reading the stories about the heroes, the good guys, the brave men and women who attempted to do things never done before. Famous presidents, war heroes, athletes, inventors, people that we admire, people that we respect, and, and people that we look up to. But to have a more thorough understanding of history, we must be careful that we don't leave out the actions of the bad guys, the villains of our fallen world. For example, a study of the life of Julius Caesar would not be complete without the account of the traitorous act of his friend Brutus. To learn the whole story of the American Revolution, you would have to examine the actions of a man named Benedict Arnold. And if you wanted to learn all there was to learn about Abraham Lincoln, you can't do so without mentioning the name John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated our 16th president. What I'm saying is that to really know history, you cannot limit your study to just the good guys. You have to learn about the bad guys as well. And I bring this up this morning because as we continue in our series from the book of John, I want to look at perhaps the world's best-known bad guy, a man by the name of Judas Iscariot. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13, where we are going to be reading verses 18 through 30. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Many of the words that we are going to read this morning are words from Jesus himself, but nonetheless, it is an account of Judas' act of betrayal. John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30, I'll be reading from the New International Version. Jesus says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so then when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. He's talking to his disciples. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's referring to John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter mentioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at that meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read about Judas Iscariot, I feel something more deeply than just studying some other villain in human history. I feel a level of complete disappointment and disgust that I don't feel with, when I study the actions of other of history's noted traitors. That's because the actions of Brutus and, and Benedict Arnold and John Wilkes Booth kind of pale in significance to what the treachery of Judas created. You see, Judas didn't betray his emperor he didn't betray his president or even his nation. He went far beyond that, and he betrayed Christ Jesus, God's only son, the one who came to this earth so that all people, Judas included, could be saved from their sins, and so they could experience the love of God in a personal way. 
This morning, what I'd like to do is to organize our study of Judas' life around three words. First, I want to look at the mystery that is surrounding this man. Uh, Secondly, we are going to look at the possible motives that might have led him to commit this act of betrayal. And thirdly, we are going to see what the message is for us here this morning, to see what lessons we can learn from Judas' life. So let's begin by um, looking at the mystery that is Judas Iscariot. I I say mystery because his life is a huge enigma. At first glance, Jesus doesn't, Judas doesn't look at all like a traitor. I just know I'm going to put Jesus in Judas and I'm going to get those mixed up, so forgive me ahead of time. I just know that way I think that's what's going to happen. Judas doesn't first seem like a traitor type. For example, his, his, the name that his parents gave him indicates he probably came from a loving Jewish home. I say this because his name was once a very, very proud name in Jewish history. You may remember, as you study the Old Testament, that Judah or Judas was the name of one of the 12 sons of Jacob, each of whom headed up one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's another example. History tells us about the brilliant uprising for Jewish independence in 164 BC, led by a name, a man named Judas Maccabeus. I told you about this particular Judas last week and even several weeks before that. He was sort of a George Washington figure to the Jewish people. For, for this reason, many parents gave their sons this popular Jewish name. Even Jesus' parents named one of his half-brothers Judas or Jude. And you may remember that there was another apostle named Judas Judas, son of James, but in order for him to distinguish himself from Judas Iscariot, he often went by his nickname, Thaddeus. So when Judas Iscariot was born, his parents picked what was in their day one of the best names possible for their boy. And as he grew up, they they no doubt raised him, just like other Jewish boys, with a thorough understanding of Jewish history. No doubt they guided him in his study of the Old Testament scriptures. I'm trying to help you to see that that Judas probably had a really good start in his life. We can also infer from the New Testament that at least at the beginning, Judas apparently had no obvious vices. While most of the other disciples were known for some weaknesses prior to and even during their time following Jesus, Judas did not have a a, a dishonorable past like Matthew Levi, the tax collector turned disciple, or like Peter, who was famous for his impulsiveness, or like James or John, who both had a temper. There is nothing uncomplimentary mentioned about Judas's character. In fact, he must have had and on his face, and and acted in ways that made him at least appear to be a trustworthy individual. I say this because at the beginning, the other disciples apparently admired him. They apparently respected him. I mean, they respected him enough to give him the responsibilities of being their treasurer and managing the meager funds that were taken into Jesus' ministry. It's also important to know that that Judas was a man of promise. I think that Jesus saw great promise in him. In Judas, he saw someone who could be used mightily for his kingdom here on this earth. After all, Jesus thought highly enough of him to send him out with the other apostles on that first mission trip. And not only that, he warmly welcomed him home and complimented him on the trip's success. Author Clarence McCartney writes, Judas was called to follow Christ, called to be an apostle, called to be one of those who were to lay the foundation of the church. So the mystery is that Judas was an admired person with a great promise in life. If somehow prior to the betrayal of Jesus, Judas were to come into High Point Assembly, 
He would probably no doubt be highly regarded. We would probably be pleased to have had him to become a member of our church. I, I say this because he seems to have been a model citizen. You don't see much saying anything negative about who Judas was. The Bible never mentions anything about him pushing himself on Jesus like James and John did. It says nothing about him ever making rash boasts or promises like Peter did. He seemed to be quiet and businesslike and respectable. Yet the perplexing truth is he chose to sell out the Messiah, the Son of God. There are many things about Judas that are a complete mystery to us. Like why did he choose to follow Jesus in the first place? And how could this likable, respectable man with such a, a good beginning, a good start in life, spend three years in the company of Jesus and finally end up doing what he did? I mean, Judas daily listened to Jesus' teachings. He listened to Jesus' prayers. He saw him work miracles. He went out and he preached and he taught in Jesus' name. He let Jesus wash his feet at the Last Supper, but then he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Well, as we discussed two weeks ago, Judas was clearly angered by what he deemed to be a waste of expensive perfume when Mary poured it upon Jesus. We read about that a couple weeks ago. And in his anger, Jewish, Judas went to the Jewish religious leaders and he offered his help. There, he offered them his help in capturing Christ. And they were more than happy to receive his help because these religious leaders knew that due to the popularity of Jesus, to arrest him in public would have caused people to riot. So instead, they arranged to have Judas deliver Jesus to them quietly under the cover of night, something that would have been very difficult for them to do without someone's help from the inside. You see, there were several private gardens at Gethsemane, and as one of the 12 disciples Judas knew which garden Jesus was going to be in that night. He even went so far as to arrange a signal so that they would know, so he could identify Jesus for those who were coming to arrest him. He would greet Jesus as someone would normally greet a rabbi with a kiss. Judas may have decided to do this because he was afraid that one of the other disciples might step up and surrender to the authorities and say that they were Jesus so that he wouldn't get arrested. He knew that in order to protect Jesus, that the others might pretend to be him in order to spare Christ from going through what he went through. After all, just hours before that, in the upper room, Judas had listened intently while each one of them professed their willingness to go to prison and even to die for Christ. We also understand that, that weeks earlier, Jewish had a, Ju Judas had apparently contracted to buy a piece of property. He no doubt also decided to use the betrayal money to complete that purchase. So the question remains, how could and why would he do what he did? What possible motives would Judas have that would lead him to betray Jesus? Well, that's what I intend to look at next. I want to look at the motives of Judas Iscariot. And first, we've got to understand Judas did not do this because he was set apart or he was chosen by God for this wicked deed. Hear me out. The scriptures indeed prophesied hundreds of years earlier that a close friend would betray the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. You'll find references to this both in Psalm 41 and Zechariah chapter 11. But God did not predestine, he did not coerce or somehow program Judas for this action. Jesus didn't choose Judas to be a disciple so that he would fulfill the prophesied role of a traitor. If he did, then Jesus encouraged Judas to sin. And our Lord does not do that. The scriptures make that eminently clear. It says in James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Plus, Jesus' actions show us that he gave Judas every opportunity to abandon his plan to betray him. For example, when Jesus was washing Peter's feet, he said this in John 13, 10. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. With that statement, Jesus was saying, Judas, I know you're not clean. You need to reflect on what you're about to do, and you need to repent. It's not too late. In fact, Jesus refers to a prophetic statement that is found in Psalm 41 when he says this in John 13, 18. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. When he said this, he was saying, Judas, I've got your number. I know what you're about to do. Why don't you just stop? It's not too late. Even the way that the table was arranged at that last supper demonstrated the love that Jesus had for Judas. The seating arrangement was left to right, Judas, Jesus, and John. So so Judas had a seat of honor sitting at the left side of Jesus himself. And I think that Jesus arranged this seating in such a way as a way of reaching out to Judas just one more time. And then when Jesus answered John's inquiry as to who would betray him by dipping a piece of bread and giving it to Judas, even this, I believe, was one more way that Jesus was appealing to Judas to turn back. You see, in that culture, to give a morsel of food and to dip it and to give it to someone else was a gesture of a special kind of friendship. Jesus was reaching out to Judas. He was saying, Judas, here is my friendship. Here is my restoration. Here is my heart. All you have to do is take it. But Judas said no, and he used his free will to reject Christ. And the instant that he made that decision... The scriptures say that Satan entered into his heart. Avery Lee writes this, if Judas was predestined to betray Jesus, meaning Judas had no choice, we would be too harsh in blaming this man for doing something over which he had no control. It would be a peculiar God who would predestine a man to such a fate and then condemn him for eternity simply for fulfilling his destiny. And I agree. I agree with that. That kind of thinking violates every concept that I have about God and everything that the Bible teaches us about him as well. For example, this way of thinking contradicts scriptures like Ezekiel 33, 11 that says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Or 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some have understood slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Just like you and me, Judas had a free choice. He had the potential of becoming like the other 11 disciples instead of becoming history's best-known traitor. He had the ability and the opportunity to choose a different path. Judas was not doomed from birth. Judas doomed himself with his own choices. So with that being settled, at least in my mind, what was his motive or motives for making this horrible choice? Well, I believe that jealousy may have played a part in it. Judas was from Keroth, a a town in southern Judea. That meant that he was the only Judean of the original 12 disciples, and perhaps this made him feel like he was odd man out. Scriptures clearly show us that he was not a part of that inner circle of Jesus, James, John, and Peter. So with that in mind, it is not difficult, difficult at all to see him slowly growing jealous and embittered, because in his opinion, the Galileans uh, had higher places of authority 
than, than he did. So, so jealousy, jealousy certainly could have played a part in, this, in the role of his actions. Another possible motive that Judas could have had was greed. Remember when Mary broke the expensive perfume over Jesus, Judas complained. He said this in John 12, 5, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, he said. Well, the very next verse, very next scripture gives us great insight regarding his passionate statement. John says this in John 12, 6, he did not say this, Judas, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas used to, used to help himself to the contents of the disciples' meager treasury. That was money that was used to pay for their expenses as well as to provide for the needs of the poor. And Judas was not a wealthy man. He, it's more, more than likely that he grew up the son of a, of a peasant. And as such, he probably never had many opportunities in which to handle money, at least that kind of money. So I think this magnified excitement of the offerings running through his hands and being managed by him, I, I'm certain that, that it paid its toll on him. And, I, and I'm certain also that all people like Judas who steal, Judas justified his pilfering from the common purse by thinking, I deserve a little bonus. After all, I've gone to some degree of trouble and difficulty for these other guys. These Galileans, they don't really, really appreciate me. They owe me a few bucks for the work that I put in. I'm the only one who has actual responsibilities here, actual work of managing something. So they ought to be paying me what they're paying a bookkeeper. Even though I volunteered, I should be paid. You even see this kind of theft. It's not unheard of in our day and age. One banking official stated that 60% of individuals who regularly handle money take money. So his experience of being a group treasurer could have provided him with first the temptation and secondly, an irresistible opportunity. Now you got to understand that 30 pieces of silver was not a, a, a tremendous amount of money, but no doubt it was more money than he had ever possessed in his lifetime. And I think these two factors, Judas' jealousy along with his greed, did play a part in his act of betrayal. They were enough to give the devil all the opportunity that he needed in order to tempt Judas. But I believe that the real tipping point for Judas, Judas had to do with what we discussed last week. And that is when Judas decided that Jesus, when he, when he heard the truth, it finally got through to him that Jesus did not come to this earth to set up an earthly kingdom, but that he came instead to bring salvation and to prepare us for the heavenly kingdom. So I think another major motive for his actions was that Judas had experienced great disappointment. I want you to listen to what uh, Bert Dominey, author Bert Dominey says. He said, Judas was disappointed at the direction of Jesus' ministry. There's good reason to believe that Judas was a member of the Zealots, the fanatical group that wanted to follow in the footsteps of Judas Maccabeus and drive the pagan Romans from Israel so that their nation's glory could be restored. And if this is true, then like the others of his day, Judas wanted and he expected Jesus to lead an insurrection against the Roman authorities. His personal belief and his personal preference was that Jesus would throw them out and he would set up his own earthly kingdom. As a zealot, Judas had probably joined the disciples because he had seen in Jesus with all of his miraculous powers his chance to fulfill Judas's dreams for Israel and not Jesus. He sincerely believed that Jesus was the culmination of the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, that he would indeed deliver Israel from bondage and make them the head of all the nations of the earth. Judas may have, I'm sure Judas was good at reading all of those great passages in the Old Testament that spoke of this, but him, like most of the Jews, and even sometimes his disciples that just weren't getting it, they ignored the other passages that spoke about the suffering Messiah. 
So he hopped on the disciples' bandwagon with the anticipation that he would be in this inner circle of the coming king. But when Jesus began to speak about the cross, and when Judas saw how he was upsetting the local religious leaders combined with their growing opposition against Jesus, he knew that his dream of what Jesus should do was fading. So he simply took matters into his own hands. And when you think about it, it is very possible that the seeds of this plan were conceived in Judas's heart right after Jesus fed the 5,000. Because if you will recall, it was right after that miracle when the vast crowd, as well as many of his disciples, wanted to crown him, at that moment, King of Israel. You remember that? But Jesus stopped them. And he foretold of, of his death on the cross. He said these words in John 53 and 54. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on that last day. And because they did not understand the meaning of what Jesus was saying here, in John 6, verse 66, it says, from then this time on, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So when many of the disciples left him at that point, I'm not talking about the 12, I'm talking about the others that followed that, him around wherever he went, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said this in John 6, 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Well, I believe at that exact moment when he said those words to his disciples, he was looking Judas right in the eye. I say that because John records that even at that point, Jesus knew the demonic thoughts that Judas was entertaining. In John 6, 70, then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. John then includes the following editorial comment in John 6, 71. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. You know, some people think that, that Judas's betrayal of Jesus was a, a misplaced act of nobility. They believe that he was trying to force Jesus to use his powers to set up an earthly kingdom. He was trying to trick Jesus into giving up on being the suffering servant that he was called to be, the one whom everyone would eventually trample on, and instead to become this militant kind of a Messiah that was so near and dear to Judas's personal heart and the other zealots who only wanted this from Christ. But when looking at the scripture as a whole, I don't agree with that theory. I believe that after Jesus' difficult teaching that followed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, that Judas decided that the kind of king, kingdom that Jesus wanted to set up was just not for him. And from that point on, his allegiance gradually disintegrated into a feeling that he had been tricked. And then he let, that led him to a conviction that he had been betrayed by none other than Jesus. But he wasn't listening. He was, he was doing his own thing in his head. And when Jesus didn't perform the way that he expected, he felt like he had been betrayed by Jesus. He decided to disengage himself from that movement that he felt was doomed to failure. He may have even had a sense of personal fear. After all, he was prominent in this crusade that had become condemned by the local authorities and religious leaders, those, those religious leaders who admitted frequently that his days were numbered and whose basic purposes Judas had come to despise. Judas sensed that he would be dragged all through this kind of ruin. And unless he, he repudiated this movement and did so in a dramatic and a convincing way, then everybody would still think he was a part of what Jesus was doing. So he decides to turn state's evidence against Christ. And he collected a little bit of money in doing so. But interestingly enough, Matthew 27 infers that Judas did not intend to send Jesus to his death. He didn't think this was going to end with Jesus being crucified. 
When he saw that Jesus was going to be crucified, Judas, the scriptures tell us, felt remorse. He actually tried to give the money back. Here are his words in Matthew 27, 4. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. The chief priests and the elders, they responded in Matthew 27, 5 by saying, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money back into the temple and he left. And as the guilt grew heavier and heavier upon his soul, he later killed himself. He hung himself from a tree growing in the land, the very property that he had planned to purchase. And the scripture even offers some details that you'd probably rather not envision when it says his corpse hung until it rotted, fell and burst apart on the ground. Pretty sick, huh? So we've dealt with the mystery surrounding this man, and we have dealt with the possible motives, but now I want us to consider the message of Judas. And what is it that we can learn from his betrayal? There's much to learn. Much of it we know. Much of it we tend to forget about. But the first message of Judas' life shows us that sin is always progressive. Sinful acts do gain momentum. And it makes it easier for us to embrace other more heinous sin. I mean, Judas' betrayal of Jesus didn't just occur suddenly. It was not a spur-of-the-moment decision that he made. It began when Judas first stole his first dollars out of that common purse. That was one act that started the, 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 the ball rolling to make it easier for him to begin to criticize Jesus which really is not that far from betraying him when you think about it. Judas's treachery came as a result of a number of wrong choices, and it developed over a period of time, and it shows us that sin is like gravity. It pulls you deeper and deeper into sin to the point that you are doing things that you never dreamed yourself even capable of. Have you ever been there? Maybe a few of you are honest in this room. Thank you. Judas' act was an inevitable result of the disintegration of his own personal character. And it is something that happens to all people who choose sin. There's a story told of an artist who was commissioned to paint a mural in, the, in a Sicilian cathedral depicting the life of Christ. The painter accepted the job and it became his life's work. He began by searching for people to be his models for the characters in this huge mural. One of the first he discovered was a 12-year-old boy whose innocent radiance, he believed, made him perfect as a model for the Christ child. Over the years, the, the mural developed. One by one, the key figures were completed till there was only one left, and it was that of Judas Iscariot. One afternoon, a man whose face appeared to the artist to be seamed with corruption, drunkenly staggered into a tavern where the artist was sitting. At once, the artist realized that, that this man was a perfect model for the remaining figure. So he led that man to the cathedral, and he pointed to the bare space on the wall, and he said, I want you to pose for me as Judas. And in his astonishment, the drunken man burst out crying and put his hands into his, his face into his hands. And he said, don't you remember me, maestro? And then pointing to the Christ child, he said, 50 years ago, I was your model for Jesus. Sin is progressive. And when you go from being a model for Jesus to being a model for, for Judas, this statement becomes very real. Sin is progressive because no sinful act is just a sinful act. Unless we, we repent and we ask God for forgiveness, it becomes a stepping stone that leads us into deeper and deeper and deeper levels of sin. We start to accept sin as the norm. We, we get to the point where we're no longer even convicted when we sin because it's become a lifestyle for us and we have separated ourselves from God. 
Well, then secondly, the message of Judas' life shows us that sin deceives. Oh, is that true? I think there's a good chance that Judas envisioned himself not as much the betrayer as he was betrayed. I believe this is what Hester Colmodelli said when he wrote, Still, as of old, man by himself is priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. Think about that. Like most zealots, Judas was a, a now person. He, he wanted things to happen now. He wanted them to hap, happen effectively. He wanted them to happen immediately. He didn't have time to wait, which is what he had been doing for three years as he followed Jesus, waiting for Jesus to act, waiting for Jesus to use his almighty power to rout the Romans and to kick them out of their land. But his impatience betrayed him. And that led him to do something that he later greatly regretted. He was betrayed and he was deceived by his own stubborn closed-mindedness. One of Judas's problems was that he was a single-issue disciple. The only thing he was interested in was ridding the country of the Romans. And it, this was the attitude that led him to start to see Jesus as a cause and not the Christ. His sinful, selfish focus led him to misunderstand Jesus' main teaching, that he had come to die for the sins of the world, all mankind. It is also apparent that Judas was betrayed by his own greed. Like so many of us, he bought into the myth that is driven into us since the time we were children, that, that more money, if I can just earn more money, I will be happy, I will live in fulfillment, when in the end, it led him to do something that brought unbearable guilt and shame. And it does that to us too when we don't manage it properly, when we don't keep the proper perspective in gaining things. So Judas's life proves to us that, that, that sin, it always tricks us. James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. As scripture tells us that our own sinful desires cause us to be dragged away, to be enticed by sin. In this familiar text, James uses two illustrations from the world of hunting and fishing to prove his point. Dragged away carries with it the idea of baiting a trap, while enticed means to, to bait a hook. The hunter and the fisherman used bait to attract and to catch their prey. Everyone knows that because no animal is deliberately going to go into a trap and no fish is deliberately going to bite on some kind of a hook. So the idea is to hide the trap, to hide the hook. And make no mistake about it, Satan always neatly packages temptation. And he does so in a way that carries with it some bait that always appeals deeply inside of us, in our, in our natural desires. And this bait not only tr uh, attracts us, but it also hides a very painful, painful reality. It's the fact that yielding to the sinful desire will eventually bring deep sorrow and grief, as it certainly did with Judas. Lot would never have been motivated to move towards Sodom, had he not been enticed by the well-watered plains of the Jordan. And when David, when King David looked down from his balcony upon his neighbor's wife who was bathing, I don't think he would have ever chosen to, to commit adultery with her if he could have seen the consequences that developed from his lust. The devil baits us from seeing the consequences that inevitably come from our sin. And in this way, he deceives us. And in this way, he betrays us. And we still see this bait and trap philosophy in our world, even today. TV shows and movies make extramarital affairs seem attractive, fun, fulfilling. But they never ever show the consequences they never show the broken hearts, the broken homes, the really messed up children. You watch any sporting event. I watched college football a good portion of the day yesterday. Forgive me, honey. 
and you'll see these beer and these alcohol commercials, and they're all the same. Every one of them, everybody's having a good time, and they're all in control, aren't they? Never once will you see a commercial of a man laying in the gutter drunk. He's drunken himself into unconsciousness. You won't ever see that. You'll never see the scene of an accident when someone was killed because they were driving drunk. You'll never see a scene of a house that is deeply broken by alcoholism and the broken promises and the abuse that goes along with that. As Judas's tragic life shows us, sin always deceives and it betrays us. But I believe that the most important message of Jesus' life, of Judas's life, teaches us this. Sin wastes our life. When like Judas, we selfishly make it our life's goal to, to amass earthly wealth, when we only live to further the kingdom of this temporary world, when we ignore Jesus and the eternity that he offers and the eternity that he has prepared for us, we waste our God-given existence. You see, any, any life like that of Judas, lived only with a worldly focus, is really a pointless life. I say that because our time here on this earth is temporary. And I've said this before, though it's not my quote, but I've said it many times. We are tourists here, folks, with a visa. We are just visiting this world. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven when our time on this earth is done. And yet we put so much focus on the here and now. We'll do anything to get ahead here, to be perceived as cool here, to fit in, to do whatever. We focus on the here and now when we forget what is waiting for us. The point is that someday every single one of us is going to die. And from that point on, every single one of us is going to face eternity. So any life that does not prepare itself for eternity in my opinion, and in all truth, is a waste. This is why Jesus himself said this about Judas in Matthew 26, 24. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Because this, this foolish disciple, he squandered his life on the here and now instead of investing in the there and then. But you know, in truth, Judas' bigger, biggest failure was not the betrayal of Jesus. And you may say, what do you mean by that, Pastor David? What could be bigger? It was the fact that he did not repent. He did not receive Christ's forgiveness. When you think about it, there's absolutely nothing different between Judas and Peter on that fateful night. Both of those disciples sank to an unbelievable low. Each one, in their own way, had completely forsaken Jesus. Yet one died, and the other one lived. One was lost, and one was saved. Why? Because Peter repented, and, and Judas did not. Yet, yes, Judas, he felt, indeed, he felt remorse for what he had done to Jesus, he tried to make restitution by returning the money, but he never, ever experienced forgiveness and restoration. Because instead of confessing his sin to God, he went to the religious leaders who had paid him the bribe in the first place. Hello? If he'd only waited a few days, instead of selfishly taking his own life, if he had only asked the Lord for forgiveness, I believe with all my heart, church, that the resurrected Christ would have called him out just like he did Peter. And he, said, he would have said, Judas, all is forgiven. See, it wasn't Judas's betrayal that sent him to eternity separated from God. It was his refusal to accept Jesus' atonement for his sin. 
And this is something that all people need to hear. We tend to think it's the amount of sin that keeps us away from Jesus, but it's not because Jesus can forgive you and I for any sin, but only if we ask him to. But we're so stinking proud that we're afraid to ask God, the one who created us, to forgive us for our stupidity. How stupid is that? Unless we repent of our sin and ask Jesus to forgive us and to come into our lives and become our Lord and Savior, we will face the same horrible existence in eternity, separated from God, just like Judas is now enduring. Jesus himself said in Luke 13, 3, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So what about you? Are you following in Jesus' footsteps or Judas's footsteps? Remember this, any human being, whatever any human being has done, any other human being is capable of doing. You understand that. We look at people and they say, how could they do that? Well, every one of us is capable of doing exactly what that individual did. So the question is, if you died today, what would people say about your life? Would they say what they said about Judas, that it would have been better off if you had not been born because now you're spending eternity separated from God? Listen, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, I want you to listen. Don't make Judas' mistake. Don't do it. Don't let your pride get in the way. Don't think that you're above forgiveness or below forgiveness. God can forgive you for anything. Don't believe that he's not capable of forgiving you of your sin. Acts 3.19 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Maybe you need a time of refreshing in your life and it begins today. Make today the day of salvation. Scott, will you come forward? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet. In light of this message today, I want to open up this altar to anyone who might want to come down here and pray. Before I do that, I want to talk specifically to anyone who is watching online or is who is in this building today and you have not received Jesus' forgiveness. And I think more accurately what that means is you have not asked Jesus for his forgiveness. Oh, you haven't betrayed Jesus like Judas did but you've also never asked him to forgive you of your sin. You've never asked him to become the Lord of your life. You haven't received what the Bible calls salvation. It's what is offered to you through what Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary. When he carried the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders, every sin ever committed before, now, and later. Every sin that will ever be committed, he bore that upon his body on that cross. And it was his shed blood that atones or that, that erases or wipes your sin away. So when you ask him to forgive you, what you're asking is that his blood would cover your sin. And when he does that, it cleanses you. And the Bible says that you now become a new creation. And in that moment, Jesus reconciles you to God the Father. You are now in a right relationship with God. He paid the price for your and my sin. And because of that, you are offered a fresh start. And in addition to that, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the living God, it now inhabits you. And it offers you power. And it offers you strength and it offers you wisdom and guidance to see the tricks of the enemy so that you don't continue down that path as your journey as a Christian. And the greatest thing is that when your time on this earth is done, when you die, at that moment you are taken into God's presence to a place of perfect peace where there is no stress, where there is no sickness, there is no disease, there is no heartbreak, there is no sadness, and there, there you will spend eternity in the presence of God. 
And the glory of that place, folks, will be so amazing that the scriptures say, no eye has seen and no ear has heard the glory of that place. It will be something so amazing that it cannot even be described in human terms. But it is our gift from God for receiving his son, receiving his forgiveness, and becoming a disciple of his. So you, if you haven't asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, if you've never asked him for, for, his, for his forgiveness, I implore you to do so today. Don't be like Judas. You have heard the truth this morning. Jesus offers you forgiveness. Don't decline him, but receive him today. You can receive his forgiveness this morning at this altar. But I also wanna to talk to Christians here today, addressing one of the points in this message about sin being progressive. There are people in this building today who call themselves followers of Christ and you're dabbling in sin. You're like the Bible says, you're a dog that goes back to his vomit and eats it up. You're dabbling in your old way of life and you think you can keep a distance from it. That's okay, it doesn't control me like it used to. And I'm telling you today, you need to come to this altar and you need to lay that before the Lord and you need to step away because if you don't, this is a prophetic word for you today, you will die in your sin. And you don't want that to happen. Before you become conditioned to more sin and more sin and going deeper in your sin, you need to put an end to it or it will consume you. That is how your betrayal of Christ will come. You will walk away from the truth that you know, perhaps from the truth that you have lived for decades, but because of sin, you're actually contemplating that you don't need Christ anymore. If you have found yourself slipping away from Christ and dabbling in any kind of sin, I encourage you today to come forward and seek repentance and be renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've been diagnosed by a doctor with some health concern, you're going through a battle, why don't you come to this altar and seek the Lord for healing for your body? Maybe you have a loved one that has a need in their life, you can come forward and represent them and pray for their need. Or maybe God has blessed you and you just haven't, you just need to praise him. Maybe you need to come to this altar, not because you have a need and you, you have something you need from God, but you wanna give him your praise. Whatever the reason, I wanna open this altar this morning. As the worship team sings, please come down. Let's spend some time at the altar in prayer. I don't have any help this morning. I guess I do have Erica. Erica and I, she's usually in children's church. Erica and I will lay hands on you. We will pray for you. If you're not gonna come down to this altar, will you please pray for those who do? Will you please pray for them like they're your own son or daughter or mother or father or brother or sister? Let's spend some time in prayer and then I'll come and we'll close this service. This altar is open.
just worship. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Slow to thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Come on, I exalt thee. those at the altar continue to pray. They can stay here as long as they want. I'd like you to bow your heads as we close this service. Precious Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that even in the life of one who betrayed you, we can find truth and warning as to how we indeed should live our lives. Father, my prayer for this body of believers is that we would never, ever quit seeking your forgiveness. We are sinful people, Lord. We have a sin nature, and it comes on us in many ways, in many different times. We're thankful for the power of your Holy Spirit that allows us to say no to sin, and yet sometimes we cross that line and we sin just the same. And rather than us walk away being defeated, Father, which is always the inevitable result of sin, I pray that we would be knowledgeable enough to fall to our knees and to reach out to you and to seek forgiveness. You are a loving, a forgiving, a merciful, and a graceful God, and we thank you for that. There's no sin we can commit that you cannot forgive, and God, I pray that we will always be mindful of the way that we live our lives, that we would live in such a way that it would bring honor to the sacrifice that you made on the cross for us, and that we would live in a redemptive relationship with you that is ever-growing, more exciting, more bountiful, more plentiful, uh, than it ever we could ever imagine living in any other way. I thank you for the promises of your word. I thank you for the promise of eternity in God's presence. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and saving our souls. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to spend eternity with you. Let us be faithful. Let us be faithful people of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we go our separate ways, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things we do, conversations that we have, Lord, that they would be conversations that would build people up and not tear them down, that we would be bright light shining in a dark world and people would recognize the brightness of your love in us and it would open opportunities for us to share your goodness with others. Father, help us during those times. I know you'll give us the words to speak, but let us walk boldly through those doors that you open and share your goodness with others. I ask also, Father, that you'll keep us safe from sickness and disease. Pray that you'll keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us until which time we come together again and worship you in spirit and in truth as a family of God. As we walk out of this place, Lord, let us know that we are going out into a mission field and that is the community known as Red Bluff. Father, let us walk boldly in your love. I ask it in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Thank you for your presence here today. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You are always welcome here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here.